Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Beck, and I have a co-host with me today, Maria Shabla. We are both looking forward to speaking with Stephen Humphreys, Air Force veteran and CEO of American Veterans Archaeological Recovery, AVAR for short. AVAR conducts expert archaeological fieldwork worldwide by combining the drive and precision of military veterans with expert training and supervision. Stephen is joining us today from Sicily, Italy. Stephen, welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Well, thank you both for having me. It's great to be on, and uh, thanks for paying attention to my program and giving us some airtime. Absolutely. We're excited to talk to you today. Well, before we get into the details of AVAR, tell us where you're from and what led you to joining the military. Sure. So I'm originally from Wichita Falls, Texas. I don't come from a military family, but if anyone has ever been stationed at Shepherd Air Force Base, I grew up about three miles from the flight line. Um, I actually, again, did not come from a military background, but I always felt the need to serve. So uh, when I decided to go off to college, I got a history degree uh, and decided to join some friends of mine uh, doing Air Force ROTC and kind of went on from there and had a really enjoyable career for about six and a half years. That's fantastic. Well, in addition to your honorable service as an aircraft maintenance officer, you also earned a PhD in archaeology. So why did you choose archaeology? It was really an accident. So uh, I got out of the Air Force in 2010 with the objective of going back into the military as a chaplain. Uh, I love being an aircraft maintainer, but what I really loved about being an aircraft maintainer was taking care of my troops, and that's what I was good at. So I knew that in order to be a chaplain, I needed to get an MDiv, a Master's of Divinity, from a seminary program. So I got out of the Air Force, and I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And they just happened to have a archaeology project in Israel. And at the time, I knew nothing about archaeology. I thought it was just kind of studying rocks. I'd seen some really boring books full of black and white pictures. Uh, had no interest in it at all, but I thought my wife and I would have a good time over there. So we signed up for this archaeology dig in Israel a year into my program. And as soon as I got over there, day one, we get on the, out on the site, start digging, and I just absolutely fall in love with it. Uh, it was life-changing and immediately decided that's what I was going to do instead changed all my degree plans, ended up getting a master's in theology and a master's in archaeology, and then, like you said, getting a PhD from Durham University in England, um, and I'm still just absolutely passionate about archaeological field work and digging very precise holes in the ground for whatever reason. It just uh, has, has always, or since that first day in Israel, has been a real passion for me. That's really cool. I love that story. So, Stephen, tell us about American Veterans Archaeological Recovery, or AVAR. Um, maybe start with the mission, and how did you get started? Sure. So, uh, I can't claim credit for the idea of putting veterans on digs for the purposes of mental health. Uh, the British actually started doing that in 2011. So, and they produced some peer-reviewed research that really showed that it worked well. 
So as I mentioned, I did my PhD in England. When I was over there in 2015, this British program called Op Nightingale, which was putting uh, British military veterans on projects, heard that there was an American veteran doing the PhD. They reached out to me and invited me onto a couple of their projects. And I saw the potential of archaeological fieldwork to really change veterans' lives. Uh, in addition to, you know, and it's easy to cite anecdotal evidence and say, yeah, I met a guy whose life changed. But the data also showed that for most people who were taking part, this really could make a big difference. And I wanted to create something that could do or that could create similar positive impact for American veterans. So in 2000 and early 2016, January 2016, actually, we started up American Veterans Archaeological Recovery in the United States um, with the goal of using archaeological fieldwork to benefit the military or the mental health of American veterans. Wow. And, and why is it that you have such a passion for helping veterans find a purpose? So I mentioned, I mentioned that uh, I was going to be a chaplain and go back into the military. I always felt just an extreme need to take care of my troops. I felt it was a, a calling more than an obligation. And I feel like that doesn't end even though I got out of the service. So this is what I'll do for the rest of my life. Hopefully I'll do it with Avar. Um, but taking care of my troops is something I'll do until I die. That's great. Um, can you also explain your position on taking a more ability focus to your mission at AVAR and why a professional level of training is so important? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I mentioned that the British programs were putting disabled British veterans on projects and reaping some benefits from that. Uh, and that's very much how the American program operated for the first few years. We were very much focused on bringing in disabled people uh, or disabled veterans and allowing archaeology to give them a new sense of purpose. What we really started to see, for one thing, was that uh, the military veterans are actually are, have the potential to be very good at archaeology. Uh, they learn fast. They work hard. They work well in groups. Uh, they work well in the kind of structure that archaeology and archaeological fieldwork demands. So we saw that they had the potential, the untapped potential, to be really good at this. The other thing is we didn't want to stigmatize veterans who had disability or disabilities by putting them in the program and then saying, you know what, these people are here because they're broken and because we want to give them a hand. Um, because in the long run, that's not really great for them, right? That's great for us as a program because it helps us to raise money, uh, theoretically at least, uh, by kind of playing on sympathies. But what we want to do is show just how uh, exceptional veterans actually are and how they can really excel if they're given half a chance. So uh, about two years ago, we started uh, focusing more on professionalizing the program, carrying out field work autonomously. So now we run our own projects as opposed to just attaching to someone else's. We promote veterans up our chain so that they can help in uh, supervising the field work very quickly. Uh, and we train everyone who comes out in the field to do this to a very high standard, and we hold them to a high standard. Uh, we expect them to be able to do this well. We expect them to not make mistakes in the field, to work hard, to work well with one another. And we find that that's where the mental health element comes from, is letting them know that they're still capable of doing something that really matters to that high level of professionalism. Um, all this really came from one conversation I had with one vet in my program, incidentally, a couple of years ago. Uh, we were talking during COVID. During COVID, of course, we couldn't really do field work. So we took advantage of COVID to have a lot of Zoom calls with veterans that had participated in the past 
to ask them what they thought of the program, what we could do better, what they wanted from a program. And there was this one key moment where I was talking to an army vet and he said, don't you F and tell people I'm broken, man, I can do this. And that was life changing for me at least. That really gave me a different perspective on what the people that I was trying to help wanted from a program. And that's really, that kind of feedback has really shaped what we do now. Mm-hmm. I, I love that, Stephen. Sometimes the label actually is is the identifier of, uh, you know, PTSD or TBI or, you know, you have a lot of depression or, or something to that effect. But there there are people and there are human beings under there, too, that are really trying every day. So I think having labels is, you know, a, a tricky, tricky situation. So I can understand why that was sort of eye-opening for you. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a, I mean, there have been many closed door discussions that I've had with people who have said, are your, are your veterans going to explode on site? Are they going to become violent all of a sudden? Are mm-hmm. they going to be able to do this kind of work? And uh, the reality is like any kind of field work, most of the problems that, you know, most of the problems that we see on site are the same kind of problems that anyone else sees on site. Someone doesn't like someone else or two people can't get along or something like that. The disability angle, yeah, we, we bring a lot of people out that have disability ratings from the VA because a lot of veterans do. But in the end of the day, they're just people who want to do the job well, mm-hmm. just like every other person that's out there. Right. So, yeah, we find it, we, we find it very important to do away with those labels and promote what these people can do. Right. And I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Um, well, can you describe just what a day in the life of an archaeological dig is like? I, you know, you mentioned that you weren't really sure you were going to like it. And what is it about it? Or just describe the day in the life of, of an archaeological dig. Like, how does it start? What do you guys do? And all that good stuff. Sure. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a general summary, I think, of what a day is like. But one of the important things about archaeology and one of the reasons that keeps people coming back is that it's just incredibly varied. There are so many different kinds of archaeology, uh, so many different niches in archaeology, so many different kinds of field work. Um, so what I'm, what I'm describing is very much a sort of typical volunteer kind of experience. But in general, we work about eight hours a day on site. This is, again, pretty normal for a kind of a pseudo-volunteer type operation. We work about eight hours a day on site. So we might do, more, uh, we might do breakfast at 5 a.m., load up in vehicles at 5.30, be out on site at 6 to kind of catch the sun coming up. Um, and then you're pretty much in your unit working. And when I say unit, that's a technical term designating a 4 by 4 meter or 5 by 5 meter uh, excavation trench. So that's a 4 by 4 meter hole in the ground, basically. You're going to be working in that hole in the ground alongside three or four other people. Um, when I say working, that's swinging a mattock, that's moving dirt with a shovel. If you're doing detail work, that could be using a trowel or hand or picks or something smaller than a trowel uh, in order to tightly define something within that within that excavation unit. But you're going to be working in usually rain or heat with three or four other people in a little hole in the ground 
for about eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, we take breaks for, you know, we take morning water breaks, afternoon water breaks and lunch breaks and all that kind of stuff. But you're spending a lot of time with that same small group of people. And then four or five in the afternoon, you're heading back home to eat dinner in a hotel or you may, you may be sleeping in a tent, depending on the site. Um, and usually you're so you know tired after a week or two of doing that that you're falling asleep by maybe nine o'clock at night. That's a pretty typical day on an excavation. It's it's difficult physical labor to be honest. It's uh, it can be uh, socially tiring. A lot of the people that we bring out and a lot of students who do archaeology, a lot of professional archaeologists, you know, may not be used to being around people in such close confines for so long. So that can be a little bit tiring. Uh, in a lot of cases, you're in a foreign country, you're in a foreign area. So that can be a little tiring. So it is, you know, the key word there is tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but that fatigue, the payoff for that is something that military veterans, I think, are uh, typically pretty familiar with. You get very, very familiar with those people that you're around. Those people really do become, uh, in some, some, or some cases, closer than family to you. Uh, you build these incredibly strong bonds just based around the fact that you're doing this, you know, this labor that you're having to work together in teams to do, and it's tiring everybody out, everybody's getting exhausted, and it just breaks down barriers. Um, and the pursuit of a single mission with that team breaks down barriers. So what you get out of the whole experience is, yeah, we, we tend to find incredible things. We do various types of missions around the world, whether that's working with the Defense POW MIA accounting agency to find Americans that were MIA, whether that's working in Israel on Hellenistic temples, whether that's working in Saratoga on revolutionary war material, you know, we work all over and yeah, you're finding these incredible things about history that had never been discovered before. You're literally changing history books, but you're also finding out things about people that you would never find out through casual conversation mm-hmm. um, when everybody kind of has their walls up still. So, um, and that's, what's always rewarding for me to see and for me to experience personally is that when you leave a site after a few months, like I'm doing now, uh, you walk away from this with a better understanding of history, but also with this new family that you didn't have when you showed up. Mm -hmm. That's pretty incredible. Um, Well, Stephen, you know, talking about, you know, the the closeness that you can find within the, your your group or your unit that you're working with, but even potential conflicts and, and working through different things as far as personalities are concerned or anything like that. Do you have anyone on your staff that is that comes with you guys and gals on the digs that um, could be there as part of like maybe, um, I, I don't know, offer some counseling or just be able to chat with somebody if they are having a difficult time? Absolutely. So we do have a mental health clinician, a full-time mental health clinician on staff. As far as I know, we're the only archaeology program in the world that does. Uh, She does not accompany us at the moment. Um, But what she does do is ensure that our staff is trained. So we bring out squad leads who are mental health first aid qualified, as am I and everyone else on the staff. Um, And all of us, I think more than that, uh, yeah, we do have those certifications. And she has those certifications in droves. She has 20 years of experience as a mental health clinician. Um, and she's always available uh, to speak on Zoom. She does numerous calls with the participants before and after each project. But um, a lot of it also comes down to just having compassion. Uh, there's an incredible amount of worth in just having people that actually care about the veterans that are coming up. Um, again, certifications are important and they're great. 
but a lot of it just comes down to having someone who actually cares about you to talk to. Mm-hmm. And we do have those. Right. Well, that's awesome. Really, really good. Um, well, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and ask you to um, tell our listeners um, about a project that you have called Operation Keeping Faith. Yeah, so Operation Keeping Faith is the name for our unique partnership with the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, or the DPAA. Their mission is to provide the fullest possible accounting of Americans who were uh, who have gone missing in wars overseas to the families of those MIAs, but also to the nation as a whole. Uh, so obviously, we're honored to take part in that mission, and it has a special resonance for military veterans because we do tend to think of those people as part of our extended family. Uh, we have unique perspective from having worn the uniform ourselves, I think. But essentially, the EPA a couple of years ago saw what we were doing in terms of um, uh, building a program that provided mental health benefits for veterans. And because of that resonance, they thought that the DPA mission would be a really strong one uh, for our veterans to take part in, uh, in terms of providing those mental health benefits. So the DPA uh, began bringing us along on their missions. We've carried out four of them now successfully uh, since 2019. Uh, so those have the dual objective of recovering material that would lead to an identification for a family uh, of one of these MIAs uh, that was, in our case, killed in World War II. Uh, but it also has the objective of improving the mental health of the veterans who are taking part today. So it's a really uh, value-added prospect for both missions, and it's been working incredibly well. Like I said, we've had four missions, two in England and two in Sicily, and we anticipate having a lot more of those in the future. Fantastic. Very cool. I want to give you a chance to talk about why partnerships are so important to the sustainment of AVAR. Sure, and I appreciate that. Um, so AVAR and myself in general, like I'm a very collaborative person. Um, <clears throat> I have learned how much I don't know, to be really honest, in terms of both the archaeology um, <laughs> And in terms of putting a nonprofit together, there are just a lot of specialists out there. And I think one of the things that we've done well as a program is bring in that specialized knowledge in order to enhance what we're doing. I mean, our program itself is essentially a hybrid of archaeology and mental health and to some extent physical health as well. So uh, if I could, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of those partners by name because they have played such a huge role in our development. Um, National Geographic has a really special place in my heart. I'll, uh, I'll uh, tell a story about that here in just a moment. Uh, National Ge- Geographic was really the first agency that saw the potential in what we were doing in the United States and decided to uh, financially back that. We absolutely would not be here if it weren't for them. Um, the, ba- the Blake and Bailey Family Fund has come along. And, uh, Frank Blake is an Army veteran himself, but he's come along at really key times in our development and has been willing to invest in us so that we can make this program work. Deathwish Coffee, uh, we developed a really strong synergy with Deathwish Coffee during our project in Saratoga in uh, 2019. So um, I think we have kind of similar ethos, ethoses, if that's the word. Um, <laughs> but they have been great in terms of not only providing for us financially, but also in terms of getting this coffee in the field. Because as I mentioned earlier, you do get very tired 
so uh, having the world's strongest coffee on hand, and I, I, I don't shill for them because they give us money. They really do make great coffee. But having the world's strongest coffee on hand during projects has gotten us through quite a bit of field work over the last couple of years. Um, and the American Battlefield Trust. Uh, the Battlefield Trust has been partnering us or with us since Saratoga in 2019 as well. And um, like the others, it's really just a natural synergy because their job is to uh, preserve American battlefields. And we are increasingly seeing that the veterans themselves are drawn toward these battlefields uh, and sense a type of kinship with those battlefields. So for us to be able to explore the sites that are owned or preserved or managed by the Battlefield Trust, um, it's really a win-win for both. So we also work with, aside from those kind of corporate and private donors, we also work with different universities, and that's because they bring in technical skill sets um, that I don't have. I'm, I am an archaeologist, but archaeologists are so varied and specialized that, for example, we have a project coming up uh, that we're really looking forward to in Central Texas, uh, just south of San Antonio, on, uh, to locate the site of a battle uh, called the Battle of Medina, which took place in 1813. I'm a Near Eastern specialist. So yeah, I'm an archaeologist, but archaeologists who specialize in 19th century Texas are the ones that you want coming out on that project. So for things like that, we partner with, in that case, University of Texas at San Antonio, because they bring in the skill set to do that work. Um, in Europe, we partner with the University of York, where I happen to be a research fellow, uh, because, again, they bring in that, that expertise in dealing with that area. Uh, they bring along a methodological skill set that we and the, the veterans benefit from. And we are always trying to get the veterans the very best training that we possibly can. So we want those specialists to come in and train them. Um, the other agency that I would mention is uh, Sacred Heart. Uh, Sacred Heart's occupational and physical therapists have been working with us since 2018. And I mentioned that we work with veterans' mental and physical health. Um, Archaeology is physically demanding. It's physically challenging. Uh, one of the main challenges that we as a program face is that we're putting people on digs who may be in their 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, even 60s. Archaeology is tough. You're, you're working with a pickaxe or a shovel for eight hours a day. Uh, it's not really ethical for us to say that this is beneficial to your mind if it's going to break your body at the same time. So we do work with those occupational physical therapists to ensure that people can do this for as long as possible and can gain the benefits uh, of the program. So, you know, I know that's a, a lengthy, uh, a lengthy list, but uh, it takes a lot of different skill sets in order to make this program work. And we want to make it as effective as possible for the veteran participants so that we're actually delivering on what we say we're delivering on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a thoughtful approach. I mean, I think you guys have, um, thought of everything, really. And I love the fact that you're going to do something in Texas. I was just literally in Medina, Texas in June of this year. Never, had Were never, you? yeah, um, in the foothills there because we had a, we had a Gold Star Children's Camp. Echo Hill Camp is out there. And we, we brought five of our EOD Gold Star children out there to participate in that camp. But, <laughs> um, I would have never, I, I do not believe I would have ever gone to Medina, Texas, had it not been for that event. You know, it, it's just kind of um, a, a little hidden gem there in the in the foothills of Texas. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll quickly plug that that project because we are really excited about that one. So that's the first pure research project that Avar will run uh, anywhere. Actually, we've been doing DPA projects, which have a specific goal, but 
Uh, Avar is running this as a research project. The objective of this project is to find the site of the Battle of Medina, which is the bloodiest battle in Texas history, which is saying something if you know anything about Texas history. Right. Um, took place in 1813, but the, the site of the battle has been lost uh, for centuries now. So, and there are multiple historical markers down there that claim to be placed on the side of the battle. So we have been acquiring over the last few years now a real, a real expertise in doing this battlefield survey. So we're going to put a team of veterans down there to find the site of the lost battle of Medina. And <clears throat> longer story, it's all possible because of Brandon Seal, who was doing podcasts and I listened to his podcast and I thought, wow, this sounds really cool. We need to go find this thing. So this guy's just got this infectious enthusiasm for this project. And because of that, we're going to go down there and find this thing. So we're really looking forward to that one, but that'll be three weeks in February of 2022. All right. So hopefully that'll, uh, hopefully that really will change the history book. Yeah, I sure hope so. I mean, it sounds really interesting and I'll be sure to follow that. I think that's really incredible. Well, that is so exciting. Um, so can you tell us how can a veteran um, get involved? Sure. So uh, the easiest way, the quickest way is to just fill out the contact form on our website. Uh, which is AmericanVeteransArchaeology.org. Um, we do have a fairly lengthy application process. Uh, so they'll fill out the paperwork, and then we'll get them set up right away with an interview with our mental health clinician that I mentioned. Um, and then if that goes well, we'll start putting them with squad leads and vectoring them toward a project. So uh, the first step, though, is to fill out that contact form and get in touch with us. Okay. And can you tell us what are some of the qualifications and disqualifiers for the program? And then what, what type of level sure. of commitment are you looking for regarding time for veterans who may be selected? Sure. So what we're really looking for, to be really honest, is attitude. Uh, that's, that's what makes this work. That's what you want to spend weeks together with in the field. You want someone who's, again, a hard worker, someone who learns fast, and someone that uh, is going to act professionally throughout the duration of a project, no matter how fatigued they get and no matter who they're working around. That's what we look for in those in those interviews. Everything else in terms of archaeological background, in terms of disability, that's just kind of chaff. We look for that. We look for that attitude. This is someone that I want to go and be with. Someone who's going to move dirt. Someone who's going to take care of their peers. Someone who's going to look out look out for others before they look out for themselves. That's what we look for um, through that interview process. Uh, and if, if someone gets through the interview process, uh, we do see those traits in the field. Believe me, after after three or four or five weeks of, uh, of field work, all that stuff comes out anyway. So mm-hmm. it's not really in anyone's interest to try to hide it. Um, and that is pretty much the time commitment that we look for. The Medina Project, the Saratoga Project, those were three-week projects. The projects that we've been doing with the DPA, those lean more towards uh, four-and-a-half to five-week projects and that's because that's such an important mission in terms of uh, finding uh, finding those individuals uh, and bringing them home and we want to do the do all due diligence to that so that's about what we ask for in terms of commitment I realize that not everybody can uh, you know can give us three weeks we're looking into the possibility of doing shorter projects in the future but because we're so focused on providing that professionalism and that professional skills training Frankly, it just takes a while to be able to do this well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what we want to bring. Thank you for that, Stephen. I'm going to pop in here and ask um, a follow-on question to that. So, um, I just want to remind everyone and make sure that I'm correct in saying that 
if you are interested in applying, it is a volunteer position. Am I correct in that? That's correct. So, and I'm glad you brought that up. It is a volunteer position, which means that initially, at least, that person's not going to get paid. Mm-hmm. However, initially, that person's costs are going to be covered. And that is, believe it or not, a very big deal in this field. I think uh, we do bring out veterans who are used to or kind of see our missions as a deployment almost or as a TDY and kind of look at them as, well, you know, they should be free or I should be getting paid to do this. Uh, this is a really key difference between military service and the world of archaeology. In archaeology, a typical first dig will cost the participant probably around five or six thousand uh, dollars, and that is how you gain experience in this field. You start off as a, you know, a rookie volunteer. You pay your own plane ticket. You pay for lodging wherever you go, and you probably pay for tuition wherever you go. So it's going to run about that much money. Uh, you do enough of those to become kind of useful on a site, and then maybe you get your cost covered. You get your cost covered for a few years, and then maybe you start getting paid. It's a slow progression, and it's expensive. So what we as a program provide is we, on DPA projects, cover all costs, which means we cover airfare, accommodations, meals, everything. We'll put someone in Sicily, for example, at no cost to themselves, aside from any souvenirs they want to take home. And we'll do it for you know, a four- or five-week period, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, on domestic projects like Medina, Saratoga, Anything like that, we cover everything but airfare because, of course, that's in, you know that's covered by the program. That's covered by donations or corporate sponsorship. So, if someone can get themselves to the site, either by flying, by driving, whatever, uh, we cover everything from that point onward. So, yes, there are volunteer positions, but uh, compared to what else is out there in the field at the moment, these are great ways to get experience without paying an arm and a leg to do it. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you for that, you know, additional information. And why do you, um, why do you think uh, these sorts of projects may be appealing for, you know, veteran EOD technicians in particular? Sure. So there is a, there is a technical skill set that's relevant. I mentioned that we're gaining expertise in doing battlefield survey. Battlefield survey is, done almost entirely with metal detectors these days. And if you think about it, it's because a battle takes place over a huge geographic region and it takes place over a really short period of time, you know, one, two days, maybe one or two hours in some cases. So digging holes in the ground to find a battle is not the way to do it. Uh, A couple of decades ago, people started doing it. Actually, uh, the U.S., the Battle of Little Bighorn site, uh, people started doing it with metal detectors in order to kind of scan these large areas. So, um, I know not every EOD tech has that skill set. I know they have it to varying degrees, but being able to use a metal detector well is really critical to some of the work that AVAR is doing. Um, also, some of the work that AVAR is doing on World War II recoveries through the Defense POWMI Accounting Agency, those are on aircraft that mounted um, UXO, unexploded ordnance. Uh, so we expect, or at least are watchful of finding that material in the ground. So having someone on those projects with that kind of skill set, again, that person has more value to us because they can potentially identify that material, uh, and keep us from losing a day of work while we call out the local police or the local EOD. So those skill sets are valuable to us. And what we find is, of course, veterans want to be able to use those skill sets that they spent so long painfully acquiring. So we'd like to be able to give EOD folks a chance to come out and really have a relevant skill set. Beyond that, 
um, the skills that all veterans bring to the fore, you know, uh, the ability to work closely in teams, the ability to, to stay calm when you're, when you're exhausted, when everyone around you is a little bit, uh, is a little bit exhausted, those types of things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, bringing more EOD folks out would be great for us. Okay, wonderful. Well, we are certainly hoping that this podcast, once it gets out onto the airwaves, you know, reaches some veteran EOD techs out there that might be interested. So we we hope you see an influx there. Um, Maria, I'll let you finish up here. Absolutely. So we understand you're still in Sicily, Italy now, just finishing up with a five-month project. Can you describe your experience? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I am in Sicily, Italy right now. Uh, and we did just finish up uh, five and a half months of excavation. Those were not all the same projects. So uh, we started in June in England, did a month-long excavation there, then did about six weeks uh, with quarantine in Sicily, uh, then did several weeks in Saratoga on that Revolutionary War battlefield, and then came back to Sicily. So uh, my core staff had been bouncing around all over the world with me for a while now. And, of course, on each one of those projects, we've been bringing in uh, a new participant team and training up a new group of veterans to do archaeology really, really well. Um, <clears throat> honestly, at this point, I mentioned before that this is, uh, you know, it's emotional to come on digs. You build these families and whatnot and uh, describing what it's been like. It's been overwhelming for me. I've, I've worked with four exceptional teams of veterans uh, and I've worked with a really professional exceptional core staff that's that's made this happen despite covid um in sicily alone this year we've worked through record-breaking heat we worked through wildfires we've worked through multiple volcanic explosions and just this weekend we worked through a hurricane so uh the people that i'm out here with really dwarfed me in terms of what they've been able to accomplish this year and it's been really an honor to work with them Wow. Yeah, um, that is amazing. And I can see how you could really develop strong bonds with people going through those different types of situations. Um, Do you have any stories that you'd like to share with our audience about any other projects? (laughs) You know, I, I, hang on just a second. I'll have to think about that one for a minute. Um, I skipped over that in the flyer because we have these there, there have been a lot of stories, but they're not all things that I can share on a podcast. <laughs> um, um, I'm trying to think of a, I know people ask me this all the time and I can never think of something on the spot. Give me a second. Sure. So we've had, we've had this incredible year, uh, or this incredible dig season with uh, a lot of, a lot of laughs and a lot of joking and whatnot. But I think the thing that stands out the most to me um, <clears throat> The, the DPA missions just really hold an incredible sense of importance, I think, for all of us who are taking part in them. And we were fortunate enough on the England project to be covered by National Geographic. If folks want to go out and look for it, um, we were excavating a B-24 with um, uh, three crew members who were killed. Uh, one of them had already been identified, so we were really looking for two people on that project. Uh, and typically, the uh, the DPA doesn't allow a lot of information to be released about this, but they made an exceptional uh, uh, case uh, for this aircraft. So those details are out in the public eye at this point. But in any case, this National Geographic reporter came out and did a, a piece on us, and the article came out. And, of course, my team's bouncing around all over the world <clears throat> at this point. But the article came out, 
And about a day after the article came out, I get this email and he says, uh, and this guy says, Hey, uh, and I won't, I won't give his name, but he says, Hey, I read the national geographic article. Um, that's my great uncle that you're looking for out there. Oh. And, uh, sorry, I can't get through that. <laughs> um, but that was getting to put my team who'd spent so much effort looking for him on a phone call with that guy while he talked about how that brought his family something special. That was, that was a highlight for me. Yeah. I can definitely understand why Stephen. you know, I mean, bringing closure and also, um, I don't know, just, just the history of it all, um, home to that family is incredible. So what a gift, you know, you all gave that family. Well, and it's, again, it's great to be able to recognize just how hard my scheme works as well. Um, and show them that, you know, yeah, we're out there working for just months and weeks on end and whatnot to, to move so much soil. I think on this last project, we did be moved something like 156 tons of soil uh, and screened every bit of it uh, to find material. So we worked very hard out there. So it was great to be able to show them that there are still people out there that really do care uh, and that are waiting for this information. They're waiting for news of that relative still, even though it's been 77, 78 years. So uh, that was something I'll always remember. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's incredible. And, you know, thank you to, you know, to you and your team for the incredible work that you do. Um, it's That's very powerful and something is, you know, I don't know, it's just incredible. And I can hear the emotion in your voice. So I know how much that must mean to you. Um, and actually, my my next question to you was, you know, what does this work mean to you? And I, I certainly, throughout this podcast interview, I mean, I, I can feel your passion about what you do, but if you could put it in, in the simplest terms, what would you say? Uh, just family. That's what these guys are. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, do you have... Do you have a message for veterans out there that may be struggling to find a purpose, Stephen? Um, you know, um, through your experience, not only as as a service member, but doing this work and working closely with veterans. Um, do you have any advice for anyone? Yeah, I think um, one thing that we tell our veterans, and one thing that I think is important, is to find someone to talk to. Uh, and maybe, you know, archaeology is a pretty niche field. Uh, I think anyone would agree that what we do is a little bit strange. Uh, and maybe this is a, a perfect fit for someone who needs to find some people to talk to. Maybe it's not. There are, I think last time I looked, something like 45,000 veteran service organizations in the United States. Uh, I guarantee that there is something out there for just about anybody who wants to re-engage with a new community. Uh, re-engage with the same community rather doing something that they love to do. Uh, and I would just encourage people to find that group that's doing what you really care about, figure out how to break those walls down and find someone to talk to because those groups are out there and those people are willing to listen. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um, well, Stephen, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you today. And before I let you go, um, I always like to end end a podcast on a, on a fun note and ask about some of your favorite things. But before we get into that portion of it, is there anything that you'd like, anything else you'd like to share with us? 
No, no, I don't think so. Thank you for uh, covering everything so well. Okay, well, here we go then. What's the most favorite place that you've ever visited? Uh, so my my actual PhD is on early Christian archaeology, actually early charity. And my favorite place in the whole world is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Uh, I was able to study it for a while. I've been able to go there multiple times. Uh, I just think it's a fascinating location to see something that's been built up over 1,700 years. Uh, that's something we in America don't get to see very often. So mm-hmm. I love it there. Okay, cool. All right. Um, and how about the most interesting item that you've ever found? <laughs> so that's another, that's another one of those typical archaeology questions. Uh, we get asked that a lot. Uh, maybe it's because it's kind of been on my mind uh, because of the recent excavations. But mm-hmm. uh, during this last excavation at the Revolutionary War Battlefield of Saratoga, we did find the first cannonball that's been found on that site. Uh, and that was pretty cool. Uh, I didn't find it personally. It was a couple of my veterans that did a really good job of, uh, of finding that and excavating it and everything. But it's it's still pretty cool to find a, a cannonball out in the middle of an open field and know who fired it. So that was that was a neat experience. I think if it was what I personally found, I was able to find a Roman mosaic floor. That was like 10 years ago now uh, in Cyprus. Um, I was digging kind of on the edge of a cliff uh, into a building and didn't have any idea where the floor was. And we just found the surface. It was unusually flat. We actually thought that uh, the mosaic had been robbed out. And uh, looked a little bit closer from above and saw a pattern underneath this. So that was that was pretty cool. That's incredible. I mean, that is incredible. Um, how about your favorite style of food? Favorite style of food? I got to go with Thai food. Thai. Okay. Do you have a favorite dish? A favorite Thai dish? Um, what is it? It's it's basil something. I think it's Pad Kraprao or something like that. Oh, okay. You're doing the formal name. I, um, yeah, I love Thai basil chicken. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I live in the UK, so I don't get to, I don't get to, they don't have a huge amount of really good Thai food in the UK, at least where I am. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I try to snag it wherever I'm at. Okay. Gotcha. All right. And how about, um, a favorite hobby or, or what you like to do during your downtime? So I used to be um, I used to be a shooter back in the United States. Um, again, I, I moved to the UK to do my doctorate in 2014. They don't look too fondly on guns, right. so uh, private gun ownership anyway. So I do. I started doing archery around that time, and so I still go out and uh, manage to shoot a little bit every once in a while. I actually got really interested in longbow archery while I was there because I thought that was culturally kind of appropriate. So, yeah, I've, I've gotten more into archery since I've been there. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Um, and, all right, one more. How about your favorite era of history? Favorite era? So, uh, this is an easy one for me. Um, I, I did my doctorate on the 427th century CE, so that's kind of the end of the Roman Empire, uh, I guess you might think of it as kind of a Mad Max version of the Roman Empire, although that's not super accurate. But uh, when things are all getting kind of changed and rebuilt, uh, they call that period late antiquity. That's what I really enjoy studying. Uh, I haven't been able to, and that's what I teach at Durham University and the University of York. Um, I haven't been able to work on those projects in a while because these days 
uh, we're mostly digging battlefields with Avar, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, in a, in some other life, I guess I, I would probably be going off and doing digs on that time period. Yeah. That's really cool. Really cool. Well, you, um, you know, just keep up the curiosity, um, Stephen, you know, and, uh, keep, keep doing the great work that you guys are doing. I, it's, it's really incredible. Um, well, again, we, we thank you so much for your time today, Stephen, and calling us from Sicily, Italy. And um, I'm glad you're wrapping up your project and things went well. And uh, we just look forward to staying in touch with you and, and looking towards the future of what AVAR has to offer. And I'm hoping, again, that some of our EOD veterans out there may, may take a liking to what your mission is and, and reach out. Well. It would be great to hear from them. And thank you guys again, both for your interest in the program and for letting me talk about it for a while. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been so, so cool and interesting. Thank you for all that you do, Stephen. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.